Hello and welcome to another very special Empire podcast. This time around we've got Robert Wydie, the director of Woody Allen, a documentary, who's here to talk about Would You Believe Woody Allen, a documentary. He, if you don't know, is the director of How to Lose Friends and Alienate People, and he's also the co-creator and occasional director of Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is HBO's long-running sitcom. Anyway, so you can listen to him and to us asking questions about him to him over the next half an hour or so. So, enjoy. Uh, Delighted to be joined in the pod booth by yet another special guest. Uh, He's a man who's behind many classic Kirby Enthusiasm episodes. He directed How to Lose Friends and Alienate People. And now he's turned his hand to feature-length documentaries with Woody Allen, a documentary. It's a pleasure to welcome Robert Wiley. How are you, sir? I'm swell. How are you? I'm good. I'm not too bad. I've got a cold, so uh, I probably shouldn't have shaken your hand. I'm, I'm so sorry about that. Wait, let me get out my Purell. <laughs> I'm never without it. By the way, if you ever want to befriend Woody Allen, that's the best way to do it. When you see him, you know, somebody forces him into a handshake, and they walk away, and he's standing there. Just You whip out the Purell, and you give it to him, and then you're his best friend. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, well, that's interesting. That's a tip. Uh, for future reference, definitely. Uh, I met Ridley Scott last week. He has a flu. He doesn't do it. He just puts his hands up immediately and goes, no, no, cold, get away. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, he's a knight. He can do these sort of things. I'm all for the bow. I, I like what the Japanese, I'm, I'm, I'm going to start bowing. I think we did a Curb episode on that. We talked about the bow. I'd love to bring the bow to the United States. It's such a polite thing, the bow. It's great. Yeah. It is. So um, Woody Allen documentary is, is fantastic. He's a hell of a subject. So what made you decide to do a doc on, on Woody in the first place? Well, you know, all of my documentaries have been on my own sort of cultural and artistic heroes and mm-hmm. influences. And Woody was among them. I mean, my first film was on the Marx Brothers, who were my first loves. And most of these influences I talk about are comedic, uh, you know, W.C. Fields and uh, Lenny Bruce and uh, uh, Mort Saul, who's a very important American stand-up comedian. So, and Woody was among them. I saw Take the Money and Run when I was nine years old and loved it straight away. So I went to see all of his movies. And then Annie Hall was one of those changed my life films. But, I mean, I was never sycophantic, but I I admired him. I just thought he was a, a really interesting filmmaker and um so i you know he'd always been hesitant to do anything like this and it was never because i'd approached him i met him in 1982 in fact he was in my marx brothers film Mm -hmm. and i was so young at the time the nice thing is i started to ask him about doing this documentary and he always politely said no and i thought you know i'll just go back every decade (laughs) and eventually wear him down and finally it it happened but his hesitation was never about um content or creative control it was always the self-deprecating thing about who am i to have a documentary like this i'm not a great filmmaker i'm not you know a bergman or kurosawa or or renoir de sica you know and who's who's ever going to finance this and who's ever going to watch it and that was sort of the hump i had to get him over which Uh was basically don't you worry your pretty little head over that. You know, believe me, there's an audience for this. So I wrote him a letter in October of 2008, and I sort of made this double case. The first case I made was that it's time to do this, Mm -hmm. and the second argument was that I'm the one to do it. And he caved. Fantastic. Was there ever any worries about him being... He strikes me as being a very private person. You get incredible access to him in the film. He seems to be very open about his childhood, about his relationships. Was there any worry for him at any point about opening up so much? No. I you know I think in the same way that on a featured film, I mean a narrative film, the way an actor has to... If they're going to do a 
project. They have to trust the director and, you know, metaphorically be willing to fall back into their arms. I think when you're dealing with a live documentary subject, and not all of mine have been alive, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's, you know, the same sort of trust has to go into it. So, uh, you know, the big hurdle was getting him to agree to do this in the first place. And once he did, uh, he was very open with me. There were no restrictions. He never suggested what I could or could not talk about. Um, you know, he, in fact, during the course of production, there were a few times where I said, hey, I just cut together this very cool sequence on Annie Hall. Can I send it to you? He'd say, no, I'm, I'm, I'm barely going to be able to look at this stuff once, let alone again and again. So just wait until you have the, the finished film. So he was very trusting, and there was no question that I felt I couldn't ask him. Again, the, the difficulties were getting him to agree there was value in doing some things. For instance, I thought it would be very cool to be on the set with him yeah. because nobody's seen him at work on a set unless you've been on a Woody Allen set because mm. he doesn't have EPK crews. There's never publicity crews around. So I thought, you know, and he was shooting here in London. He was shooting uh, You'll Meet a Tall Dark Stranger. This was summer of 2009, I guess. I said, can I come? And he said, you know, my sets are boring. Nothing exciting ever happens. I barely talk to the actors. You'll be flying out from LA to London. It's very expensive. I don't think you're going to wind up with anything usable. He said, if you want to come, you can come. But I, I, you know, think about it. Okay. And I said, no, I, I want to do it. He said, okay, he was fine. Same thing about uh, taking him back to his uh, childhood neighborhood yeah. in Brooklyn. I thought that'd be a very cool thing to do. And again, it was, uh, he says, look, nobody cares where I grew up or where I went to school or where I played stickball in the streets. You know, I <laughs> can't imagine just walking around town and saying, oh, here's where I grew up like anybody cares. You know, if you want to do it, we'll do it. So those were the sorts of things that took some effort to talk him into but in an interview situation I, I felt there was no question that was off limits okay and how how much how long did you spend with Woody first of all? that question is off limits okay no. <laughs> um, from the time I approached him until the time the film was finished was three years I would say between two and two and a half years of solid production and you know I interviewed him I was, you know, on and off during that time. Uh, I don't know exactly how much time we spent, but I logged an awful lot of FaceTime with him. I mean, I I think there were maybe half a dozen formal sit-down lit interviews. Uh There was the Verite material in Brooklyn and uh, uh, in in London. I filmed him in his home. You actually see him, as, as you know, seeing the film, you actually see him writing a first draft of a script, which he writes in longhand on yeah. a yellow legal pad on his bed. On his bed, yeah. Yeah, and then he types it up, the first draft on this old Olympia portable manual typewriter that he bought me when he was 16. <laughs> it's the only thing he's ever written anything on. So you see him in his home. And um, so, you know, we spent quite a bit of time. I filmed him in his editing room. So, the, you know, the nice thing is that because he is very shy, as you pointed out. Scarlett Johansson refers to him as being cripplingly shy. Mm. And this has nothing to do with his celebrity status or anything. This goes back to childhood. You know, he's always been that way. But also a, a lot of time, uh, Bob, as well, going through archive footage, which I imagine must have thrown up the odd surprise. I mean, there's these great footage from on the Dick Cavett show and uh, What's My Line, or that's what we know it as over here. I mean, was there anything that really surprised you or anything that you thought that, yeah. does, that can't exist anymore? I'll tell you, the, the business which people talk about when they see the film because it's so bizarre is him boxing an actual live kangaroo. Yes. <laughs> In fact, that was on a British show. That was called Hippodrome. Yeah. He, he actually did a fair amount 
lot of British TV. You see the the uh, Derek Nemo thing, and mm-hmm. uh, da- well, the David Frost was out of New York, but um, yeah, the boxing the kangaroo that was odd, and and all that early TV stuff. You know that all. It's funny because Woody is now known as this guy with you know so much integrity. He won't do this. He won't do that. He doesn't mm. show up for the Oscars. But it's so funny to see that there was a time in his career where he'd do anything, mm. and that came from. I mean, this was the time. I mean, he he had great managers. Jack Rollins and Charles Joffe were legendary. And now, the point of management, the way I see it, at least where I come from, is to just cave in and give the clients whatever they need so they don't leave you. Yeah. But back at that time, clients listened to the managers instead of the other way around, and they did what they were told. And Jack Rollins told Woody, "You do as m- you do as much TV as possible because you got to enter people's." living rooms, America has to know who you are, the world has to know who you are. You need to become a household word so that your career can grow off of that. So Woody did all these game shows. You see him singing with a, a, a talking dog yeah. and I've Got a Secret or something. All this dopey stuff. He did, you know, advertisements. He did uh, ads for um, Foster Grant's uh, sunglasses and mm. uh, men's shirts and uh, Aero shirts and Smirnoff vodka. So he was quite available for those gigs back then. Right. And, and what does Woody think of those things now? Because he does project his image of, uh, as you said, he's very self-deprecating. He doesn't see himself in the same bracket as, as Bergman or Kurosawa. He seems to be very much, in, in some ways, a tortured artist. Does he look back on those things with, I guess, embarrassment? Does he... He, he looks back at those with embarrassment, but the odd thing about him is, you know, he looks at Manhattan with embarrassment. Really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's a, he's a tough customer, especially when it comes to his own work. Now, I'm being somewhat facetious by comparing the two, but there is a connection. I mean, you see in the documentary that when yeah. Manhattan came out, he thought he had botched it so badly that he offered United Artists, the, the yeah. releasing studio, that he would do a film for them for free if they would not release it. He thought Manhattan was unreleasable. You know, you ask him about Annie. I mean, the the number of people I know who say that, you know, the film Annie Hall changed their lives. I mean, Woody just shrugs and says, well, that's a very sad statement about their lives. You know, he he, he thinks it's okay. He doesn't hate it. But, But, yeah, the really early stuff really bothers him. And it was the one thing that I was concerned about. I didn't, I wasn't concerned about any of the Mia Farrow stuff and Sunni and all that. The thing I was concerned about was I knew he has... I know he has such a dislike for his early stand-up material, which, mm. by the way, for any comedy buffs who follow American stand-up comedy, I don't know anybody who doesn't think that his stand-up was brilliant. And most of it still exists on record, I guess. Most of it is available digitally now. I have the LPs and the CDs, yeah. you know, years and years ago. But, but uh, and, and sure enough, you know, when he w- finally watched the film, that was the one area that he was... You know, he said, oh, boy, that joke that I did on the Jack Parr show. <laughs> Always hated that. I never knew why people <laughs> laughed. It wasn't funny then. It's not funny now. Is, you know, can you find anything to swap out for that joke? So a couple of those, literally like two, he was so adamant about that I really did swap them out. Oh, really? Because, I mean, what did I care? I used this joke or that joke. The two, I, <laughs> That's still a good joke. Great. Gold, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah. it was an easy bone to throw him. I didn't care. But he that, that yeah, seeing that early stuff really embarrasses him. So he's still he's still rewriting himself fifty years after the fact, which is which is amazing. But uh, did you get any insights into his his I guess working process? I mean, you you said uh, you know, there's that great footage of him writing on the bed, which always made me think when I when I see that stuff, he's going to have back problems, surely, because he's he's leaning yeah. over and he's hunched yeah. and he's writing longhand. That can't yes. be good for your hand. Well, yeah. So our parents told us that, and they told us not to sit too close to the television, or we'd go blind. <laughs> or, 
there's other stuff in high school that was going to make us go blind. I, I don't know if any of that really came about. I mean, he's 76 now, and he's he's holding up pretty well. Uh, but by the way, I, I should point out because there's been some confusion about this. There are two versions of the yeah. film. What was done originally for American public television was a two-parter. It was three and a half hours. This is PBS. Right. Yeah. But then once there was an opportunity to actually put the film in cinemas here in England and, and elsewhere, I just thought, well, you know, it's just unfair to ask. And, you, you know, you can't put a three and a half hour movie in, into a cinema. So I did I did the cut down myself. I cut it down to, to just under two hours, which is much more watchable than one sitting but uh so you know my basic tact is to tell people and i don't say this to shill the film it's true is that if you like woody allen by all means go to the cinema and see it and if you're a real woody allen nut Mm. the longer version will likely um, certainly it will be on dvd eventually but um so yeah the 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 his his process you know writing casting casting is covered more in the longer version than the shorter version uh, seeing him on the set directing, seeing him in the editing room. I mean, I follow Tall Dark Stranger through that process, mm-hmm. and then you see him finally releasing the film at the Cannes Film Festival. And then I went back the next year for uh, uh, Midnight in Paris. But uh, this stuff was interesting to me because, as I say, you, you never see it, but to actually see the process by which he writes. And we were talking about the typewriter before. Um, you know, when I didn't know he was going to show me the typewriter, and when he did, I found it pretty fascinating. And I said to him, knowing that he is not a man of who utilizes modern technology, <laughs> I said, well, how, you know, how do you cut and paste on a computer or word processor? You can digitally cut and paste. What do you do? And he said, well, I keep these little scissors here. And he has these scissors, you know, by his desk. And he literally cuts out, like if he's doing a rewrite and there's a section that he likes, he physically cuts that from the piece of paper and he actually <laughs> staples it onto the new piece and puts it into his typewriter. So he cut, I mean, he's he's very old school that way. Did you try and persuade him to to upgrade to a word processor or heaven for fan to computer? Yeah, I, I'm going to tell Woody Allen how to live his life. <laughs> he's, he's been so unsuccessful at the way he's been doing it that I should come along and tell him how to do it. No, he and he even laughs in the film because he's showing me this stuff and as he's saying it for the camera, he realizes yeah. how ridiculous it sounds and at one point he kind of chuckles and he says, I know this sounds very primitive but it's always worked for me and he's not a big <laughs> fan of change, you know. He does have an iPhone, by the way. He uses it for actual phone calls. He carries a lot of music on it because, you know, he loves jazz, yeah. you know, old jazz and New Orleans jazz and Sidney Bechet and that sort of thing and, and music from the 40s. So it's loaded up with some music, so he has that with him. And then the only thing he does that's sort of internet-related is he'll check the weather. <laughs> and uh, Owen Wilson said that when they are doing uh, Midnight in Paris, he, he knew he could always chat with Woody by coming up to him and saying uh, so Woody what's uh, the weather in Cairo today and Woody would say oh let me see and he would be very excited about being able to tell him what the weather was in Cairo so that, that's Woody's iPhone and that's about as far as technology goes for oh him. I'd love to see a Woody Allen weather app that'd be <laughs> that'd be absolutely amazing it's rainy today and <laughs> should, should be sunny later but you know probably the clouds will come back and it'll be miserable that's an amazing impression uh, have you done an impression for him has he seen your impression no no I would no. never do that <laughs> I mean, he's made a film every year for uh, since 1969. He? he averages that, at least. Yeah. Uh, was it difficult choosing the clips of the films you wanted? Or were the best bits of easy, apparently, to apparent to you? Yeah, I mean, it's... Um, you know, the difficult thing is going into the editing room and just figuring out what the narrative is, what story you, you want to tell and what points to cover. And, you know, the film clips were chosen on the basis of let's say, you know, Annie Hall is a very important film. And so there's something you want to illustrate about 
how Annie Hall was a different film than anything he had done before. So that informs some of the choices. And then sometimes um, something will come up in an interview about a specific film, like uh, Gordon Willis talking about shooting the famous iconic bridge scene in Manhattan. So you use that clip. But, um, you know, he's been so prolific that it occurred to me when I started the film and I was going to watch all the films again, that if I watched a film a day, which for you guys is nothing. I'm sure you watch like five films a day. But for me, you know, I have a life. So, <laughs> so, so I figured if I watched a film a day and lined them up, let's say I took the weekends off, it was going to take me two months yeah. just to watch the films yeah. once. And uh, my attitude towards editing on the documentaries is I try not to have a real specific idea of where to go. Um, with the structure of the film, but I just want to get all the material into the editing room. Mm-hmm. In this case, it means the films, the you know the the, um, uh, the 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 secondary footage like the TV stuff, all the stuff that I've shot, all the interviews, and you know I milked Woody for everything I could think to ask him. <laughs> and likewise, you know other interview subjects who maybe wound up in the film for forty seconds, those were still two and a half hour interviews. So my my thing is go into the editing room with everything, and then kind of figure out what the hell it is I want to do with this. Now I knew in Woody's case that his career arc going from, you know, writing gags for newspapers when he was in high school to writing for stand-up comedians and then doing his own stand-up, how that led to What's New Pussycat, how that led to him vowing that he would never write another script unless he could direct. And then having that, maintaining that control for 43 years. That to me was an interesting story. I, and then I knew I wanted to cover his creative process from writing to casting to directing to editing. So I knew I wanted to tell, to tell that. But that's really all I went into the room with. And then you just have to sit through all this damn stuff and <laughs> you know, look at what you got. And, you know, for instance, um, you know, Woody told me in an interview, and this is in the film, that he was a pretty happy-go-lucky, you know, normal kid until he was five. And uh, that's when he realized he was going to die someday. And nothing was the same after that. He said he just could not get with the program. He thought it was it was unfair. And he said it changed everything. So now I'm interviewing him, and I, you know, Woody, I know Woody's films inside and out. So as soon as that's out of his mouth, I knew in my head as I'm sitting there with him, I'm going to cut to the clip from Annie Hall yeah. where he's a yeah. little kid and yeah. he's worried that the universe is expanding and his mother is saying, you know, what's I got to do with you? He stopped doing his homework. And Woody, little Woody says, well, what's the point, you know, because the universe is going to come to an end. So, you know, you make those connections and then one thing leads to another and before long you have a three and a half hour film. <laughs> but what was your first assembly? Because I imagine that was roughly about five, six hours. No, I used, I used to make my films that way where I would make like a 20 hour film. Okay. And then w- I remember with the Marx Brothers, the name of my Marx Brothers film was uh, The Marx Brothers in a Nutshell. And our first <laughs> cut was 17 hours. <laughs> and I said, you know, we should call this The Marx Brothers in an immense nutshell. <laughs> um, now what I do is I always try to have a, a working version that's a reasonable length. So if somebody comes into the interv- into the editing room and wants to see something, I, I'll, they'll, they'll see a film that's rough, but still roughly the length of a normal film. That's just, you know, it's an easier way to do it. Fantastic. Um, I remember a few years ago, uh, our sister magazine, Q, who are, which is a music magazine, ran this massive feature celebrating a band called the Beatles. And, uh, I've heard of them. I've heard of them, yeah. British, they, right? they might do quite well, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they had as a sidebar, they had uh, a selection of, of people, other rock stars, who didn't like the Beatles. And they were saying... Other oh, rock Beatles stars are, or people... The rock stars didn't like sorry. the Beatles. Yeah, they were, uh-huh. they were rock stars. 
in your in the course of making this interview, did you find anyone in the world of comedy who doesn't like who Beatles? doesn't like Woody Allen? Oh. Um, that's a good question. Uh, mm. Apart from Woody Allen, perhaps. Yeah, right. <laughs> that, that would be the true answer. You know, it's very funny because, you know, I'll, I'll, again, I'm not such a sycophant that I love every one of his films. There uh-huh. are films of his that when I line them up to watch again, I thought, oh, God, I'm going to have to sit through Curse of the Jade Scorpion again. You know? <laughs> it's that period, isn't it? There's a period around Curse of the Jade Scorpion where the films got a bit... That, that's sort scorpion. of the, the conventional thinking, yeah, was that that was the period where people were starting to write him off. And I deal with that in the documentary, too. And yeah. it's interesting because my, my understanding is that in England, people weren't that crazy about Matchpoint. But in the States, that really... Yeah. sort of reestablished yeah. him. That was his big comeback film, you know. Um, it was like a home movie to us. You know, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, but in any event, um, uh, again, where were we? Some of the people who maybe don't like people Woody Allen. Like yeah, well, you know, I, I know a lot of comedy people of roughly my generation or older. And, I, you know, there are people like Judd Apatow, I know. And, and, and we, you know, most of the comedy people I know share the same loves. I don't know anybody who doesn't love the Marx Brothers. I really don't know anybody who doesn't love Woody Allen among my own contemporaries. And, yeah. you know, people like Larry David, who I work with, who's a good dozen years older than I. I mean, we all grew up loving Woody Allen. But I'm I'm sure there are, you know, the people out there who, who don't care for him. It's funny because I, I thought you were going to ask me because you brought up the Beatles thing is that Woody has no knowledge and no interest of any music post, I guess, 1950. <laughs> to him, music is 1910 to 1950. Right. It's all about jazz. I mean, it's the music he plays is New Orleans-style jazz, yeah. but obviously, if you saw Radio Days, you know he loves the you know the American standards that he grew up with during the 40s and the big band era and swing and all that. No interest at all in rock and roll or anything that started to happen during that time i mean even the beatles he would just shrug his shoulders and say you know i don't get it so uh, that, he, that great scene in hannah and sisters where diane Vise takes him to a pop concert right that's, exactly. that's what it is isn't it that's exactly what yeah he's it really and then he yeah. takes her to yeah. hear bobby short at the carlisle which yeah, exactly. is so old school but yeah that you know that stuff is very much based on his own tastes does does Woody keep up with modern comedy? Has he seen Curb Enthusiasm recently? Yes, he has seen Curb. I mean, you know, he he has a casting director named Juliet Taylor, and you know, I think Juliet Taylor tries to keep him anchored in what's contemporary. I mean, he needs to know to the extent that he's going to be casting, you know, actors. And in fact, I just read today that Louis C.K. is going to be in his new yeah. picture, which is interesting. Um, so I think he keeps up with what's going on today to the extent that he, you know, doesn't want to be some, you know, old guy who's completely out of touch. But I don't think he has any great love for much of what's happening comedy-wise. But, by the way, that's consistent with the way he's always approached things and certainly his own work. I mean, Woody doesn't think Casablanca is all that much, which is funny <laughs> if you've ever seen, you know, Play it Again, Sam, where yeah. the opening sequence is him watching the climax of the film with his you know mouth open what else we what's talked he, what was his beef with Casablanca he just thinks it's a you know it's an okay pot boiler <laughs> but you know nothing more than that uh, let's see we talked about oh he, he, he there's a thing on YouTube if you go on it's called uh, 12 questions with Woody Allen oh, yeah. and it's me asking him these things that were never meant for the documentary but I thought it would be good for promotion and, and the DVD just me asking him these 12 kind of off the wall questions sort of not not quite like pint of milk but but almost <laughs> so I told him to 
name a film that he always has to defend liking and to name a film that he always has to, f- to defend not liking. To name the films but not to defend the choices. And the film that he finds he always has to defend liking is Casanova's Big Night, which is an old Bob Hope, silly, you know, movie. Yeah. He loves Bob Hope. And the film that he said he always has to defend not liking is Some Like It Hot. And who, you know, who doesn't like Some Like It Hot? <laughs> we talked about On the Waterfront. And he said the only thing On the Waterfront really has going for it is Marlon Brando's performance, and that's it. There's nothing <laughs> but... It's really? dreadful taste. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But he loves Bob Hope movies. So he loves there, Transformers. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, right, exactly. I'm a massive fan of Transformers. Yeah, he's got a Megan Fox thing. We, we should hire him as a reviewer, Ian, don't you, don't you think? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sounds great. He's exactly. tough. I'm curious. So you've obviously known Larry David, I think, since the mid-80s. Right, um, right. I mean, he seems to have so much in common with Woody Allen. Did the two of them meet before they worked together? Have they known each other a long time? Well, what people forget is that Larry was actually in two earlier Woody Allen films. He was in Radio Days, but he was so tiny in the frame <laughs> that now when you see the film, you say, God, that sounds like Larry David, but you literally can't see him because it's one of those shots that's shot from a mile away. You know, it's, uh, it's uh, w- w- Larry plays the, uh, the communist neighbor to the house that, you know, tells him that all this, you know, Jewish holiday stuff is, yeah. is horseshit. And then he had a, a you know a bigger role in uh, New York Stories and the Woody Allen piece. Oh, He's yeah. backstage when you know the 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 mother disappears and all that. Edith Rex, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. exactly. And you know what's interesting about Woody and, and Larry is that they're you know they're very different in their own ways, but there is quite a bit of overlap. And now it's funny because Larry and I have twelve years between us. Larry and Woody have twelve years between them. But they both grew up in the same part of the world in, in Brooklyn, different neighborhoods within Brooklyn. Larry's from Sheepshead Bay and Woody's from uh, Midwood. This is all very interesting to your British <laughs> listeners. <laughs> and, uh, we have Google Maps, don't worry. Yeah, yeah, it's sorry. fine. We're, we're well, both, both you and New York have Soho. So. <laughs> <laughs> and Soho House, as it might be. That's true. But, um, so a lot of that has to do with growing up in those, kind of, in those Jewish families in, in Brooklyn where, where, where you, know, you heard the neighbors fighting all the time and you heard your parents fighting all the time. And your life was out on the street playing ball and you know getting into mischief on the street with your friends and and all that so there's there's similar upbringings which i think lead to a similar point of view on life and and similar humor as well absolutely are you tempted to do uh, a woody allen cameo to ask him if he'd appear in the show or is that not to the way it works. Curb? Yeah. No, let's not push it. Let's, <laughs> let's not get crazy. You know, I mean, we're friendly and, you know, I'm, I'm happy with the exchange of emails, which continue to this day. <laughs> Getting an email from Woody Allen is just so much fun because sometimes he's funny in the way that he's clearly trying to be funny. And other times he's being dead serious and it's hysterical. And we, you know, we were corresponding quite a bit before we even started filming, which was great because the ice was broken through the correspondence. So by the time we filmed, we were both comfortable. There wasn't that, you know, period of, you know, uh, you know, sort of checking each other out. We, yeah. we were fine. But um, the, our emails, the way, you know, friends will, this will happen with friends is, you know, especially guys, is you start to get very sarcastic and insulting <laughs> with each other and all that. And, uh, you know, there's, there'd be a time that I'd say to him, uh, I don't know, I'd, 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 I'd ask him if he'd consider doing something and he'd write back and say, well, you know, what kind of a moron are you that you think I'd ever consider doing? <laughs> and then I'd write back and say, listen, Jew boy, you know. So <laughs> it had turned into that somehow, which is, uh, it continues to this day. I wrote him recently about a memorial service for a mutual friend of ours, so somebody that we both knew that was held in LA. And I was just in a newsy way telling him about who was there and, you know, what happened. And he writes back and he says, uh, 
He says, I've never understood the concept of memorial services. They don't bring back the dead person for one second. (laughs) And everyone who's there is just there out of a sense of guilt and political correctness. And uh, they're just the stupidest things I've ever heard of. And I wrote back and I said, Woody, I I think the idea of memorial services is to give closure to the living. I said, can you understand for one second anything that normal people do? (laughs) And then I said, it's a good, you know, you're so lucky in the documentary I didn't expose to the world what an idiot you truly are. (laughs) So this, so those emails are fine. Did he reply to that one? No, he didn't actually. (laughs) I actually haven't heard from him since. So you could destroy Woody in a heartbeat. You have all this footage, like a sword of Damocles hanging over his head, and you could release to the internet in seconds. Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's interesting, too, because he, uh, you know, uh, I mean, he knows he can trust me with his, I mean, Mm. uh, anecdotal things like that I'm happy to to talk about. But every now and then there'll be something in an email, and I'll say, well, he really does trust me, because if I were one of those guys who wanted to, I mean, nothing terribly, you know, uh, that could... that's character assassination, but just like personal things that I think, oh, that's nice that he felt okay about sharing this with me. So he does have a computer. No, I'll tell you how okay. the emails work. I'm confused. Is here's the email process: is I mail to, I email to him care of his assistant. Uh-huh. She either prints it out for him to read, or she reads it aloud to him. He dictates his answer back to her, and she emails to me. <laughs> so that's the process. Occasionally, I'll get an actual hand typed letter but those are pretty rare because most of the stuff that we'll have to talk about is fairly time sensitive but that's the process that's amazing I had images in my head of him printing out emails or writing them on this typewriter and then cutting and cutting and pasting <laughs> right, exactly. and then somehow scanning it in and then right. bringing it and sending it, send it right. to someone I've sent him emails where I've said uh, you know the, what I'm telling you is for your eyes only and nobody else should know this so please put your assistant's computer into the shredder after you read it <laughs> I told him you know when, when the uh, documentary aired in in the states and you know there's a time difference between new york and la so it's three hours different is in both respective cities in new york and los angeles um woody allen became the number one twitter trend in each city as the show was airing so the next day i wrote to him and i said i know this means nothing to you (laughs) but last night you were the number one twitter trend in new york and la when the film was showing and he wrote back he says I have no idea what Twitter is, <laughs> but it sounds computer-related, and so this can't be good news. <laughs> I have to ask, we're huge Cub Enthusiasm fans here. How involved are you with the show these days? And will they These days, not so much. I mean, I... It's funny to talk about because it sounds aggrandizing. It's not meant to be. But Larry and I developed the show together. He, When he called me up, he only had this idea to do uh, uh, an HBO comedy special that would be sort of a mock documentary about his returning to stand-up comedy after not having done it for nine years. And Larry and I had been friends since the early 80s. We shared a similar sense of humor. We liked each other, but we had never worked together, although we had talked about it. So he called me up with this very vague idea and said, if I do this, do you want to direct it? And I said, sure. He said, come to my office. We'll map out what it is. We'll flesh it out, figure out what it is. So we spent a week together. We fleshed it out. And we did this one-hour special without any thought of doing a series at all. And HBO, to their credit, before it even aired, called up Larry and said, how would you guys like to do a series based on this? And Larry called me up and asked what I thought. And, you know, I, I don't have, not only do I not have Woody's work ethic, I have no work ethic. <laughs> so Larry said to me, do you want to do a series? And I said, well, how many episodes do they want? 
And Larry said, well, they want 13, but I'll bet I could talk them down to 10. <laughs> I said, if you can get them down to 10, that's great. Because, you know, we'll do five and they'll cancel us and then they'll have to pay us off. And that's perfect. So, you know, we did the first season thinking nobody would watch except maybe our friends, not even our families. And, you know, it caught on a little bit. We did a second season, third. And every year I thought, we're not going to do this again, are we? And Larry said, no, no, no. And then he called me up and said, yeah, I think one more season. So after five, I left as a full-time director, executive producer, and I've gone back subsequently to direct the odd episode here and there, but I'm no longer on as a producer. The last one I directed was for series eight. It was called Palestinian Chicken. And, Great um, episode. Yeah, that made some noise in the States. <laughs> uh, good noise. And it got me a Director's Guild Award, which was a real surprise. But um, I, I can tell the question forming on your lips is, is he going to come back for another? Yeah, I was just curious. Does, does he run ideas past you? Is he still coming up with, with stuff? No, we, we, I mean, at this point, my relationship with the show isn't such that he runs ideas past me. There, I was basically replaced by three guys, which I took as kind of a compliment, I guess. <laughs> and so now they sort of collaborate with him on ideas. And I'm, uh, you know, he'll call me up and say, I'm going to do another season. Do you want to come back and direct an episode? And I'll say, of course. And that's the relationship, my relationship with the show at this point. But I, I, I imagine he'll he'll do a ninth. I have this feeling in my gut that he would like to do ten because it's double digits. It's a nice round number. I think Seinfeld lasted nine seasons, mm. so he can say he you know, did one more than Seinfeld <laughs> or something. But that, uh, don't hold me to it. I have no empirical evidence. That's only my gut. Would a, would a movie ever enter your mind? Could a curb movie work? Well, you know, I just got to... I, I guess I can go public with this because I, it's on the IMDb. I got an email from um, Greg Matola yesterday. Mm-hmm. There is... I don't think it's a curb movie, so to speak, but it is a movie written for Larry that I think he wrote with the three other guys who are now on the show. And I haven't talked to Larry much about it other than I knew it was in the works. But Greg Matola wrote me... Um, ostensibly to ask about editors, but but I think Greg Matola, well, he's he's uh, supposed to be directing it. Oh wow! But I d- I don't know if he's playing a Larry David like character or if it's something completely different or what. But I'll I'll find out and report right back. Yeah, absolutely, please yeah. do, please do, because that that couldn't be entirely improvised, could it? I mean, that would be. Could you say no. there's a script there? So no, well, there is a script. I mean, the whole reason Curb is improvised, other than it lending a sort a certain kind of uh, documentary verisimilitude, which is a word I love using because it makes it sound like I went to college. Um, <laughs> it's really because Larry can't memorize dialogue. And when 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 Woody sent Larry the script for whatever works, Larry assumed, because Woody said in the letter, you know, the part of Boris, and Larry thought, well, it's just some kind of tertiary supporting role. And he opened up on page one, there was like a three-page monologue <laughs> that said Boris, and he almost had a heart attack. And then Page 40, there was another model, and then he realized this is for the goddamn lead role. He couldn't believe <laughs> it. And he wrote back to Woody, or he called him up and said, I, I can't do this. First of all, I'm not an actor. I can only play myself, and I can't memorize dialogue. And Woody said, don't worry, don't worry, you'll get through it. I remember talking to Larry when he was shooting, and I said, so how's it going? Are you guys getting on? Is there a lot of, uh, you know, Knicks talk? Because they're both fans of the Knicks, the New York basketball team. And, Woody, and Larry says, no, there's no Nick talk. There's no Nick talk. Every day I'm just, you know, I'm beating myself up because I can't memorize this dialogue. And, and I get so, and, you know, Woody bucks me up and says, it's okay. It's going to be fine. And, and then I go back to my trailer and, and I try to memorize the, the dialogue. It's a nightmare. So it was really tough for him. 
but he got through. I wasn't really committing to that Larry David impression. <laughs> I started off, and then I kind of backed off. And then it became a little woody, and then it got confusing, and then I gave up. So, if you had, we might have all cowered in fright. Yes. Yeah, who knows? But um, you said that Larry considers himself uh, not an actor, really. I mean, did you find working on you know several years of Curb that his acting improved, and and do you take credit for that? If if so, uh. I found his acting didn't improve. It got worse, and I'll take credit for that. How's <laughs> that? Uh, no, I mean, it's. I mean, he's playing. I mean, that's that's not who Larry is. It's you know the same thing that Woody does. It's a comic exaggeration of who he is. Yeah. But Larry's ability to. I mean, you know, he never had to show emotion. Well, anger, I guess. But he never had to show real emotion on the show or anything yeah. that you know is going to win any sort of awards or anything and you know he always did that stuff fine i found i mean if you if you look at the show in the very early days i think it's so real that you could mistake it for being an actual documentary and many people did mm. many people thought he was really married to cheryl now especially the, the the special the original one hour special if you didn't know that cheryl hines wasn't his wife or that jeff garland wasn't his manager you could absolutely watch that hour and think it was a real documentary yeah uh, it's it's very and that's one of the reasons he wanted me to do it because I make documentaries he knew I'd sort of know the rules to make it real and even the first season or two on the show not as real as the special but still pretty real and then I think after that the the story started to get a little bigger the performances started to get a little bigger the situation started to get a little more outrageous and and the coverage started to become more conventional single camera coverage than strictly sort of you know mm. documentary coverage so i think the show has evolved but but uh as far as larry's acting uh you know uh, i don't know seems about the same okay Fair enough. you talked a little bit about woody allen stand-up uh, with larry the the there's a legend that he used to come out look at the audience and if you didn't like the look of them he'd just walk off without <laughs> saying a word is this true did you ever yeah, witness that? that that didn't happen that often but uh <laughs> Or often, I should say, I'm in England. Uh, but uh, yeah, it yeah, I, I I did witness that. I mean, we were friends back then. Yeah, I saw him get into fights with the audience. I saw the audience break out into fights. There's like the pro Larry faction and the anti Larry <laughs> faction, and somebody would boo him, and somebody else would say, "Shut up, leave him alone." And then something would get thrown, and then there'd be a melee, and Larry would just stand there watching this, and eventually walk off because there's nothing to do. You know, the audience was was entertaining themselves. Um, Yes, and occasionally there were times when he would walk out on stage, just size up the audience, and by looking at them, he would know, and he'd just say, nah, nah, <laughs> and he'd walk off, and that was, which, which the club owners did not find amusing, actually. They, they um, had a show to put on, and when one of the comics just walked off stage, they had a, you know, a, a, an empty hole to fill. But uh, it was, I, I thought he was brilliant back then, and I, I'm not saying that because he's a friend of mine. I, you know, he was known as a comics comic, which meant that nobody thought he was funny except other <laughs> comics who would line up in the back of the room to watch him bomb. And, <laughs> and uh, but I remember sitting there thinking, you know, the these the kind of material he did wasn't typical stand-up material. There were these sort of Robert Benchley-esque conceptual flights of fancy where I thought, you know, he may not be a great performer, but the material is great. And I used to think... If the country ever caught up to this guy's sense of humor, there'll be, you know, riots in the streets. And that's exactly what happened with Seinfeld, because yeah. Seinfeld was so much his, um, uh, you know, point of view, his, his comedic presence. And, and 
you know, it just became this huge hit around the world. So how did this guy who was totally uncommercial, who nobody understood really except half a dozen people, wind up doing a show that stuck to his voice that became this kind of a hit? It's still, it's still incredible to me. Judging by the amount of celebrities that you've had on the show, he must be as as liked and revered as, as Woody Allen is. Has there been one guest star in particular that you've been really proud of or couldn't believe you got? Oh, well, you know, it's interesting because the first season when we were doing the show, before it aired, because we were shooting the first season, and nobody knew what it was, we had one episode where we needed to get a celebrity and we could not get anybody. And Larry went to people that he either knew or slightly knew. I remember it was going to be Dustin Hoffman and then Warren Beatty and different people. Everybody, nobody would do it. And then Diane Keaton said she would do it. And so we started to shoot it and we all these Diane Keaton references and then she got cold feet and backed out. And we said, you have to do it because we've shot the whole show about you. And then we figured out a way to have her appear on audio only. So by the time the first season aired and we shot the second season, we had a queue of celebrities wanting to get on the show. <laughs> so that was always fun. I I enjoyed, because I was a fan of hers and had a little bit of a schoolboy crush on her, uh, when uh, Alanis Morissette was on the show. I directed that episode. Of course, my wife was on that show, too. So <laughs> I was kind of stuck. But, uh, uh, yeah, there are a lot of great people. And then finally, it was season... In fact, season five, I guess, my f- my last season full-time, is when we did the episode... Th- this is where we really got beyond documentary, when Larry dies and actually goes to heaven. And his heavenly guides were Dustin Hoffman, who had passed on that first season, and Sasha Baron Cohen. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it finally got to the point where we act- we literally had a list of people who said, you know, if there's... You know, from the agents who said, if there's ever anything my client can do on your show, yeah. even just a little cameo, please let them know. Fantastic. And uh Oh and Mel Brooks was great to work with too on the show. Our season our season four yeah. story arc where Larry gets cast in the producers on Broadway. That's my favorite. Oh yeah. I love that season. Yeah, that 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 was great. Mel Brooks, by the way, I just interviewed for a, an American magazine, the Directors Guild uh quarterly. Mel is eighty well, he'll be eighty six this month. And he is still firing on all cylinders. Is there a documentary of Mel Brooks? Uh, I think something is being planned also for American Masters, which is the series that aired my uh, my Woody Allen film. It's funny when I talk about Mel because he's just so sharp and bright and he's still physical and he's agile and he's in great shape. I've said before to people, you know, Mel Brooks is 86 years old and he's still full of beans. And then, of course, that always conjures up the Blazing Saddles <laughs> scene in the fireplace, and I, the, 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 the uh, campfire. I say, no, no, not like that. But okay. he's great. And what is next for you, Bob? Well, I, I sort of take the throw 10 things against the wall and see what sticks attitude. So I always have a lot of things in development. There are two different features I'm attached to. That's sort of a horse race as to which one will go first. We'll see. There's something that I'm hoping I'll be able to announce in the near future, which involves doing a British TV series with someone you all know and love, who shall be nameless. Uh, Unless I get the green light, then you'll all know about it. Um, Documentary-wise, I've been struggling for years to finish my Kurt Vonnegut documentary, who's also on my short list of creative heroes. And and Kurt, I approached 30 years ago, 1982, soon after my Marx Brothers film. I started filming him in 1988 and continued to film until shortly before his death in 2007. Mm-hmm. It's never been a fully financed picture, so it's always been kind of a hobby project that I work on now and again when I have time and money. But I'm hoping with the reaction to the Woody film that it might be easier to get financing for the Vonnegut film. So I'm hoping... I hear from Vonnegut nuts all the time. You know, when, you know, when are you going to finish your film? So 
I'm hoping in the next year or so. That sounds like one where the uh, the first assembly could be five or six hours in. Yes. Been filming for twenty years. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, well. it, it doesn't stop. <laughs> okay. Well, wish you all the best, Bob, and uh, and uh, thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure. I'm one of the few American readers who gets your magazine on a regular basis. You know. Do you uh, are you on our mailing list or do you buy it every month? Uh, it gets sent to me because I wrote a piece for you guys when uh, I did How to Lose Friends and mm-hmm. I said in lieu of payment just send me the magazine so <laughs> I still get it I don't know how long <laughs> eventually someone's got to catch on and say he wrote one little piece 12 years ago we're still sending him the magazine for it's free. a gift that keeps on giving don't, yeah. don't knock it it's, yeah. <laughs> it's all good well, and there's one last thing uh, obviously we've had Simon Pegg on this very very podcast because Fantastic Fear of Everything opens at the exact same time as Woody Allen a documentary yes I told Simon I'm going to wipe the floor with him <laughs> And then I amended it to, I'm going to, you know, dust the blinds with him. And now I think it's down to, I'm going to polish the doorknob with him. But, you know, I want everybody to go see Fantastic Fear of Everything. And then they can see my little Woody film. That's a double bill. Yeah, there you go. There you Peg, go. Peg and Woody, what's better than that? Absolutely. Fantastic. Uh, Bob Whitey, thanks very much indeed. My pleasure.